I don't have the scientific numbers to back this up, but I would wager that Paris might be one of the top five cities in the world when it comes to a location being the backdrop for an expat-related movie or show. Seriously, there are quite a few. An American in Paris, Before Sunset, even Pixar's Ratatouille, and the aptly titled Emily in Paris are all set in the City of Light. It seems to be the go-to spot for creating the atmosphere of a young person or animated cartoon who wants to move to a new city in a new country to chase a dream. And that could be Whitney Marin's story. A few years removed from college, she left New York to pursue her dreams of working in film and art in France. She's currently an international sales assistant at Art France and previously worked as an associate producer with boutique production companies, True Films, and Critical Findings. And in 2021, Whitney launched Current, an innovative bilingual web series and podcast featuring conversations between millennials about the global state of our society. In this episode, Whitney shares how studying abroad experiences in France and India solidified her goal of working in the film industry abroad. She discusses her experiences as an au pair that got her in the country and the eventual transition into the art industry. She also takes a deep dive into the nuances of storytelling in her adopted home and her motivation for launching her series. Now, let's be clear. Even living in Paris has its ups and downs. But for Whitney, she's definitely living out her dreams. Welcome to the Global Chatter. So I'm going to start saying that when I start recording these episodes, they're almost always early morning for me. And I see Whitney smiling because <laughs> because I seem to pick people whose days are have, have already are halfway completed and mine is just starting. So this is my fun way of saying, ignore my voice because this is my, mor- <laughs> my morning voice. And I want to say welcome to Whitney, who you guys have already you know heard her introduction. So Whitney, how are you doing today? I am good. It is about 2 p.m. in Paris. So I, yes, as you said, my day has <laughs> started a little bit, but um, I love a good Saturday afternoon. It's a, it's a nice time of day for me. Okay. I'm glad you said 2 p.m. For me, for those of you who want to do the math, it is 8 a.m. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we're both at very different stages of our day. And um, I, I anticipate that this is going to be a an exciting episode because I think Whitney's got a really fresh perspective that we haven't heard on the show, and I'm I'm pretty excited. And so, here's how I like to start, or at least how I like to start lately. I like to give people context. So, just tell us where you are right now, and you may have actually already said it. So, ignore me because it's the morning. <laughs> yeah. So I am currently in Paris, not too far from the 17th arrondissement. The weather has been quite crazy in Paris recently, but today we have sunshine. So yeah, all is all is well. Spring is is starting to take effect. <laughs> okay. When you say crazy, has it been 
cold, snowy, hot, warm, windy, rainy. Yeah, literally the- last week, uh, it was so beautiful and there was so much sun and I changed my wardrobe like slightly. And then yesterday <laughs> there was snow. <laughs> okay, legit. I just interviewed someone who was in Austria and he said the same thing. He was like, it yeah. was like great. And we we're like, okay. And now it's like a snowstorm. And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. Maybe climate change. Just putting that out there. <laughs> but yeah, seriously. Yeah. Summer is my favorite time in Paris because it's beautiful and there are fewer tourists. But spring is also really nice. I'm just really waiting for it to to get here and be officially spring. So, uh, you know, that's a really interesting um, thing you just said. I'm just curious. So why are there fewer tourists in the summer? Like fewer from France or just fewer in general are in Paris? Oh, sorry. I meant to say fewer people except for tourists. But also okay. in the COVID years, there have been fewer tourists. So in general, summer is pretty empty because Parisians like to go on vacation. There's a lot of people traveling and it's just like a different vibe in the city. And I love it. It's just nice. You go on walks. You don't, you know, this actually in, I'm from the US and New York and the sun sets at around 8 p.m. pretty much all year round. There's like, you know, daylight savings time and all that. But in the summer in Paris, the sun sets at around 10 p.m. and it's literally magical. It's like you have such a long day and you just, yeah, enjoy. And you're right, thinking about COVID because I anticipate though, with the world starting to open up and probably by the time this airs, it'll be summer. You might have like a rush of folks because people haven't been able to, and in terms of tourists, I, obviously I think the, the Parisians are going to still continue what the Parisians do because that's what they do. But <laughs> I think you're going to get a rush of like folks who are going to be like, oh my gosh, we haven't been able to travel in X amount of years. I wanted to go to Paris or Paris is my favorite city. And so kind of prepare yourself for that. <laughs> All right. I, I wouldn't mind it too much. I don't, I don't like have a, a strong opinion about tourists, but I just like emptier, <laughs> like an emptier Paris is a more romantic Paris for me. But um, we'll see. Mm. We'll see how many tourists show up this summer. <laughs> so I, you've already given a, a little bit of, of, of insight in terms of your life. So you grew up in New York. Is that correct? So I was born in New York. And then when I was eight, I moved to Florida. So I actually grew up most of my life in Florida until I moved back to New York to go to college. Okay. So that's really interesting. So tell me a little bit about that. Because you know, one of our themes is definitely kind of cross-cultural living. And I know it's it's still within the United States, but huh, New York and Florida are not the same. So <laughs> so where in Florida were you? Yeah, so it's a small town called Cape Coral. In my mind, mm-hmm. it's a small town, maybe geographically and like population-wise, it's not that small. But it's yeah. the kind of town where everyone knows their neighbors. I went to the same schools with, you know, the same groups of people. So for me, that was like real suburbia. You had football games and cheerleaders and all the Americana that people, like a lot of Parisians think that's like very interesting and like American. (laughs) And for me, it was just kind of normal. And then New York, on the other hand, uh, I have some family in Long Island, but also just the city is just a whole different dynamic. It's very urban. You have a lot of things going on. And I think I would have been a completely different person if I grew up in a city. I think having grown up mostly in the suburbs and in a more like chill, like Floridian, always sunshine kind of environment really, yeah, has really shaped me. And I am glad to have had kind of the best of both worlds, in my opinion. So was the early years in New York, particularly around the city as opposed to upstate or some other parts of the state? Yeah, yeah. I've been living in in Manhattan and in Queens. Okay. Yeah. No, that's totally different. I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to imagine making that move. And obviously, 
you moved to Florida when you were eight. So a little bit younger, right? But I'm trying to even imagine making that move as like a preteen or a teenager. I think I would have been like, <laughs> I just left the city where there's a bazillion movies made about it and everybody wants to go there. And culture shock. <laughs> well, I grew up also over my summers while I was living in Florida. I spent a lot of time in New York. So that's why I, it's weird because people get kind of confused when I say, yeah, I'm from New York and Florida. They're like, what do you mean? Those are like two very different and like geographically <laughs> far places. Um, yeah. But for me, I feel like these two places have quite shaped me. And, and it's weird for me to say I'm from New York and it's weird for me to say that I'm from Florida. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of always throw in throw in the two of them. <laughs> So obviously there's domestic travel there. Did your family travel to other places within the country or did you do any kind of international travel? So I mostly started traveling when I went to college. Uh, This was really the first time I was like living away from home. And there were all these different opportunities in terms of like spring breaks or study abroad or summer opportunities. So that's when I really kind of explored that mostly to travel domestically, but also I had two two different study abroad experiences in college. One was in Paris and the other one was in Mumbai in India. Okay. So those are also two very different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like I, I feel like you are becoming the queen of like extremes and parallels, right? It's like I did, I was in the city in New York and now I was in Florida <laughs> and then I, you know, went to France and then I went to India. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't know if you've ever kind of thought about it, but it's really interesting how you sort of, and I don't want to say they're extremes, they're, you know, they each have their own uniqueness to it in, in good ways and in bad ways, right? But that's pretty, that's a pretty different, I, I hope you recognize that. Obviously you lived it, but that's a very different choice, I would say, when I hear most people say, I studied abroad and in kind of the different places they went. Well, for me, I guess I had always been really passionate about France and about French culture and Paris for some reason. So I knew Mm -hmm. that that was a place that I wanted to study abroad. And then for India, I had been studying film and television. And this whole program was about Bollywood. So I was like, I cannot pass up this opportunity. (laughs) I was so excited to do that. And that's kind of where those two experiences kind of came into play. So it seems to me that when you went to college, you already knew that and you know, full disclosure, I think you went to Syracuse. <laughs> yes. Okay. But it seems like to me that you already had a plan that you were going to study abroad. Does that sound kind of fair? Or is that something that you thought you would do? Well, before I went to college, the only thing that I knew that I wanted to do just from, you know, researching all the different universities that I was applying to was going to Syracuse's, the Newhouse School's <laughs> LA semester program. I knew that I wanted to spend some time in LA, um, but that was technically like more of like a domestic study abroad, if you will. Yeah. And I wasn't really sure what programs I could do internationally. For some reason, it didn't really cross my mind until freshman year. And I was just looking mm-hmm. at what I could potentially do. And that's when I was like, wow, like this would be amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And study abroad kind of became a part of my plan that year. And I and the reason I always highlight this is that, you know, if we have folks who kind of live, who listen to, who are across all kinds of, you know, just aspects of life, parents, whatever. And what's always really interesting to me, especially talking to Black expats, is that how many of them had a study abroad experience. Like there, there's some key experiences that kind of foreshadowed that they would live abroad. Study abroad's a big one, right? Whether it happened in college, there's some people that it actually happened in high school. Um, you know, I've had a couple of people who parents were in the military. And so they had, they had some kind of experience living on a base somewhere outside. And then folks whose parents where one person at least wasn't had an immigrant identity. This seems to be like the most common thread with 
the vast majority <laughs> of folks, study abroad being one of the biggest ones. Um, occasionally I have some folks on here who none of that was their story. And they, they went on a trip as an adult and just decided like Dr. Carmen Brown, you know what, let us live in Australia, New Zealand. <laughs> and, and I, that episode, by the way, if no one's, if you haven't listened to it, it's a great episode, but you know, just you talking about, you know, getting to college and, and I think this is a lot of people, they don't think this is a thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, our, our universities are doing a better job of saying, hey, you could study abroad. And so, Definitely. Mm-hmm. yeah, so I feel like that makes sense. I mean, if you had no reason to think about it, freshman year seems to make sense that or sophomore year that you would be exposed to it. Yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of my friends were figuring out where they wanted to go. It was like a whole thing of how to design your four years in college to to make sure that you, yeah, really got the the most out of the experience and for all that you were paying to go to school. So right. it's really, <laughs> yeah, definitely a big opportunity that I think opened the doors for a lot of people to really think about living abroad after college. So let me ask this. You know, you, you identified both France and India. I'm very interested. Which one, which opportunity came first? Was it the French experience? Yes. So the French experience, um, it was actually a program called Paris Noir. And mm-hmm. it was all about uh, Blacks, Black expats in Paris, the Harlem Renaissance, the Negritude movement. So it was really focused on literature. And it was with the professor that I had had a class with the semester before. I was so excited to really go on this program. And I, I knew that the Bollywood program existed, but it wasn't every single year. So I kind mm-hmm. of had to like, you know, wait on that one. Mm-hmm. But traveling for the first time abroad to Paris, I think was the best kind of way that that could have happened because it wasn't about being abroad. It was about this specific kind of period of time of literature that I was interested in. And of course, the city of Paris. Um, but then that opened my mind to, you know, what else there is abroad and what opportunities there are for people to live and to work and to just have all these different sorts of experiences. Yeah, I think Paris is a fascinating place when you talk about Black history and Black culture. Um, early on, I think around season one, I had Kevi Dona of Le Paris Noir. And, you know, I've known Kevi virtually for almost since the beginning since I did this thing. Um, <laughs> because, you know, he, he comes from Martinique and he, run, you know, he runs his whole brand about, you know, doing walking tours and whatnot. And I also had, and this is on, on the Black Expat website, Julia Brown, who's from Canada, who also did a lot of, this was before it was a thing as well, sort of these, these Black history tours and education. And it's very interesting to me when I, when I hear kind of, you know, like your experiences, because I worked at a university where they had a similar program, almost always the most popular, like, thing, right? Especially, didn't matter, especially amongst Black American students, right? It's almost like it's super yeah. hard to even <laughs> to get into it because there's only so many spots. It's, you know, at a particular time of year. But the history and the literature and the politics and how you, I think particularly as you see yourself as a Black person and depending, you know, what your history is. This is the thing I always used to tell folks about study abroad, especially with Black students. They almost overwhelmingly love experiences where they can kind of tie it to their own experiences and they can see themselves. Those are always Mm going to be the most popular, right? Like 100%. They will go to London, they'll go to other places and that's cool. But if you've got one that specifically focuses on somebody's Black history, don't even need to have to be their (laughs) their Black history. 
they are like, how do I go? Cause I want to learn. And so what did for you on that experience? I mean, obviously this is your first international experience and obviously it's very, the focal point is black Paris and black history. What was that like for you? Like what, what do you think? I, I, not to assume it was a transformational experience, but what for you do you think kind of clicked once you had that experience or while you were on it? That's a really interesting question because I think a lot of the things that clicked for me about Paris Noir happened after I started living in Paris full time. Mm. Because it's just so interesting to see the perception of Americans abroad, the perception of African Americans abroad, and the perception of Africans abroad. So I feel like there's a lot of dynamics at play here that when you're there for a specific, like it was a six week program. So it was a a short period of time. And although we did kind of get into like race and like race politics and and perception of, of different people in different spaces, when I really started living here, I think I got a better sense of what I had experienced previously during this study abroad program. But all in all, I think my big takeaway from having that experience was just that Black people are everywhere and they're doing amazing <laughs> things everywhere um, in all different periods of time uh, in history. And it might not be something that you learn about traditionally, um, mm-hmm. but when you take the time to really go deeper into those stories, like Josephine Baker, for example, it's, yeah, it's just really fascinating to see the different cultural ties and, and geopolitical ties that exist. Yeah. I feel like that's a big takeaway for a lot of Black folks, <laughs> at least coming from like the States or Canada, right? It may be a little bit different if you're coming from other countries, but like this, okay, A, there are Black people everywhere and they really are doing amazing things. And, you know, there's so much gaps in our teaching in terms of history, right? Yeah. That I think that for, to be very honest, I think it's just affirmative for a lot of Black folks just to be like, no, we've been here and 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 we've been doing things and and contrary to what doesn't get showcased, these things leave, live on and we're still influenced by it. And so, you know, you, you mentioned, obviously, you're right, six weeks is a short amount of time. And, I, and I, I'd be very curious that you, you know, being in Paris, you're still Black American. At that age or at that time, did you have any observations in terms of like racial politics or dynamics? Not necessarily from the study abroad experience, just from observing or being part of like, the French community and kind of seeing things at play. Was there anything that kind of stuck out at you or were you just really kind of immersed in, I'm just trying to soak in being in Paris? Yeah, that's a good question also, because I'm trying to think what, what my biggest kind of standout moments were for that program. And I think they were just the conversations that we had with the, with the guest speakers that came in mm-hmm. and just about this concept of colorblind France. And I guess right. in the U S you know, racism is very, overt. It's very uh, in your face. You know, you'll have a lot of stories about certain incidences that happened where people were calling people names and like all of these different things. And I guess on a global scale, that looks very, yeah, that's like the definition of racism. But then you go to other places and racism might look different. Um, and I think the perception that of France that I think a lot of people had is that France is, you know, colorblind and that they really focus on integration and like everyone is a part of the French ecosystem. There's no, there's no race. They don't even have like race statistics and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think the program really showed just like the nuances of, of what it could look like and, and how it really takes place, which is something I, yeah, I hadn't really thought about in detail before, before this program. I think it's a really good point. And I've, I've had conversations with many a European, particularly <sighs> 
because, well, here's the thing about the U.S. The U.S. is large. We have <laughs> one of the largest Black populations, right? And then we also have probably the largest or one of the largest media apparatuses in the yeah. world, right? And so, you know, you could be on, like, we know this thing, Black Twitter. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, what's Black yes. Twitter? I never know how to define it to anybody. I'm like, you just, if you, if you know, you know. Like, you there, you there. It's like... <laughs> There are things I see on Twitter and I want to explain to a friend. I'm like, you're not even going to understand. Like, there's so many layers and nuances to how <laughs> this one meme is here. But like, you know, I so I've had folks who be like, you know, well, you guys talk about race all the time. But here in, and it's not just France. I can see this with the Netherlands or whatever. And folks are like, well, you know, we're colorblind and we don't look at color. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not true. Because actually, <laughs> you don't overtly say you look at color, but when you actually look at the fabric of your society and who's where and who's doing what and and who's in certain communities and who's not, you are color aware. It's just, you just think it's impolite to, <laughs> to actually say, to call it out. Whereas Americans don't have that hang up, right? And then there are other parts- it's, of the, it's all in the history of how each right. society evolved. Like America is still dealing with slavery. France has colonialism. I think these right. two things, you know, that, that defines what the manifestation would look mm-hmm. like today. So Right. Well, and I think there's also lo- layers of privilege too, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's the other part that's intertwined. And and I've I've had this conversation with some other folks who live in France and you know, sometimes the experiences are very different. I think you even alluded to it, being Black American versus, you know, coming from maybe Senegal or coming from yeah. Morocco. I mean, we can get to that whole, that's a whole other color conversation, but do you know what I mean? Or coming from Cote d'Ivoire or Benin or, or, or whatever. And so if, if that was your experience in France, how long were you in India? India was, I think, a four or five week program. Um, okay. And we're yeah. in Mumbai for three to four weeks and then we had a couple days in Delhi. So how was how did that experience align? Because by that point you'd already had your French experience. Right? Yes. How did that align with, you know, your this this is now a new study abroad experience in a totally different continent and a totally different culture and a totally different context. Yes. Um India was something I was so, so excited for because again it was Bollywood and that was just so attractive to me. Um, but the whole point of the program actually was to learn about Indian cinema beyond Bollywood. Um, yeah. So there are tons of other manifestations of, of, of Indian cinema that don't include song and dance and in different languages and all of these things. So for me, uh, that was the huge pull of, of going there. And then also to go to a non-Eurocentric you know, country as a study abroad experience since I had already been to Paris, which was in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I just kind of went with an open, open mind to just experience this culture. And, and I was with a group of friends that, you know, I had known before the study abroad program, and it was a very small, intimate group, maybe like 10 of us. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a really amazing experience for me. And I think it really affirmed the fact that I wanted to live in France after <laughs> um, graduation to the sense where it was, oh, I want to work in the film, television, you know, cinema media industry, but in a, in a foreign country, because there's more than Hollywood, there's more than what America is and has to offer. And I think storytelling in its different forms in an international perspective is just so interesting. Like that's what, mm. what really kind of allowed me to have these two comparative experiences. And then, yeah, for me, that was just like the most exciting thing that I could do after graduation. 
and in some ways, I think you probably already answered this question because it's it's the same question I asked. I was thinking about when you mentioned France is. Was there a transformative moment or situation that happened for you in India that kind of made you sort of pivot in your thinking in terms of, you know, race, politics, social strata, just international living? Did you have that? I don't know if I, I had a transformational moment in India. Uh, for me, I think my, my favorite part of that experience was working on a short film with a few other people from the program. Um, and we were able to work in schools and work with students who were living um, in slums. So they were going to this like special program that would allow them to, you know, advance in their education and in their life and kind of support their family. So just being able to see these different dynamics in another country, not not just like poverty, but just literally how people live, uh, how people interact with each other, what the the situation is. And for me, that was kind of like, OK, like there's just so many different ways to experience life. And for me, so many stories that I feel like need to be told. So I feel like that was my big, uh, yeah, takeaway from, from, from India. It was, it was a really beautiful country and a really beautiful experience. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I'm dragging you down memory lane, but <laughs> and you're like, you're saying, you're yeah, like, I honestly, actually have to think about all these things, but you know what? <laughs> no. Yeah. Honestly, India feels so far away, but so close just because of the group that I went with. And like, I constantly see like our pictures resurface and we went to the social media together. Yeah. yeah. It was like a whole, yeah, a whole thing. I'm so glad that I, I was able to do that while I was a student. So I think it's safe to say that after both of these experiences, did it sort of solidify in your mind that you were going to move abroad? I mean, obviously France was in your sights, right? But did that would you say that happened? Yes, those two experiences were definitely a huge factor as to me even having the courage or the thought or the volition to just say, I'm, I'm going to leave America and just go to a foreign country and live there completely. And so did you, you know, and, and I'm wondering, this as a college student or even after, did you, if, if you had decided that France was where you were going to go, did you start practicing the language? Like, did you like, or were you just like, I'm just going to show up, we're going <laughs> to make this work? <laughs> oh, man, I remember a conversation that I had with a former professor. So I was actually a dual major um, at Syracuse. I did in the Maxwell School's public policy program, and then in mm -hmm. the Newhouse School's uh, television, radio and film. So I had always kind of had this double plan or like this dual major kind of situation where I loved media and I loved storytelling, but I also loved like the world and like politics and the economy and just like this kind of concept of, of yeah, politics almost. So I remember talking with this professor and I was like, yeah, like, I think I'm going to move to France after I graduate. And he was like, Whitney, you know, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Like, he was kind of like, what do you mean? Like, what are you going to do for like a job? Or like, what are you planning to like do with your life? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to move to France. Like, that's my, that's my big <laughs> that's plan. <your> plan. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I actually applied to the Middlebury schools, like summer language program. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, like I took two semesters in, of French in college and it was mostly horrible. Like, I think I was so embarrassed <laughs> to talk. I felt like my French was just horrible. And so I was like, I need to do this language program. I need to learn French and then I can go to France and like do all of these things. But then, you know, life kind of got in the way. I needed to get a job. So I started working in New York for about two years. And then before I really made the move to France, I decided to take classes at Alliance Française. So that was maybe six months where I was just learning French after work. 
And yeah, that was what kind of prepared me to say, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so we're back from the break. And as you were listening, we got Whitney up to Paris. She hadn't yet gone to France yet, so she kind of built up the anticipation. And so, you know, here's always the question for anyone who comes on here and they're in a country and, you know, they've been there for a minute. What did you do when you got there? Because because most people were thinking about moving somewhere. Like, how does this work? So you were you had a job and you were learning the language and you know your your background as you have talked about your educational background anyway has been in film and production and and then there's some pol- public policy studying as well that you did. So how did you take your skills and your abilities over to France? Like, what did you do? Yeah, so I think the whole experience thus far for me has been complete like kismet, you know? So I was trying to figure out if I should move to France as a student because that's the most accessible way. And then I later decided that the most accessible way for someone that does not have money is to become an au pair. So that was my entryway into France. Mm -hmm. I was an au pair for a full year with a French family and I lived with them. And I had a six-year-old little girl that I took after um, after school. And for me, it was kind of amazing because it was a, a reverse gap year in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had gone from working like a 40 hour a week job to working, I think 12 hours a week, just hanging out with like this, this kid. Yeah. Which was like really amazing to, you know, have this cultural experience living with the family, understanding France, basically how, how it works, how it's set up, what the structure is, what, what people do. And then also having this time to travel and just kind of like redefine myself, understand what I'm looking for in life and, and all of these things. So that was my first year and kind of entryway into, into Paris. I think you might be the second person I've had who said they, for them, it was being an au pair. That was like the start of their story. We, <laughs> we were joking after about my, <laughs> my older episodes, which whatever, y'all should still listen to them. I mean, they don't sound... <laughs> Techie, the same way they sound now, but they were good. And episode number two, I believe I had Abby Gugu Banda, who has been on the Black Expat, and she's from South Africa. 
And so for her, her experience coming to the U.S. initially was, was, you know, working with families and, and being an au pair. I mean, she has since launched into being an estate manager and working for the really wealthy, but, <laughs> but it started with that. And so, yeah, that's a really interesting way. I don't think, and I don't know how common I've had black folks who said they've done that. I've, I've heard definitely had other folks. And so that I, I'm thinking that was, I don't know if other people in your family were like, wait, you're going to go to Paris and do what? <laughs> That's so funny. I think my family was just like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> like there was no <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> any kind of anything. They're like, yeah, go ahead, do that. Why not? <laughs> Seems like a really good way to get to France of France. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, and, and honestly, it's a really interesting way to, I think, get paid, have at least have some living expenses, like your living expenses covered and, to see a country, right? And to see a culture. Cause I mean, every family is different, but being in a family, a French family, right? I, I, if you're going to practice your French, that's probably <laughs> the way to do it, right? Is to be, is to be embedded. Yes. I remember I came with, um, an au pair agency and I specifically requested to be with a family where I would be able to primarily speak French because it was my goal to really learn the language that first year. Um, so I only spoke English with the, with my au pair kid on Wednesdays. And that was like a oh, wow. big, because Wednesday is like a big day in France where kids aren't in school up to a certain age. So you have a bunch of activities and you're always like, you know, keeping them busy on Wednesday. So that was our like big English day. But other yeah. than that, my goal is, yeah, to really just like immerse myself and to learn French. And so when your year was up, what was sort of your next steps? Because obviously you did not stay being an au pair because that was a one-year contract or one-year experience. Yeah, it was just one year. And I guess I was considering a couple of different things after that year. I was thinking of being an English teacher because that seemed like another way to kind of be in like a secure situation and like maybe I could do grad school at the same time. And then I was, yeah, applying to grad school. So they have this thing in France. I'm not sure if it's it's something that we do in America, but it's called an apprenticeship. So basically, you're able to go to school and you work at the same time. So mm -hmm. I was accepted into grad school and I went to grad school maybe one week of a month. And then the other time I was actually working. So I was employed mm -hmm. with a company and my studies were focused on production and my job mm -hmm. was actually in distribution. Wow. I mean, I think the closest thing we have in the U.S., Definitely the undergrad level, not sure they have it at the graduate level, but they probably do is co-ops where okay. if you think about it, like it's sort of the same concept where you work and you go to school. Um, and sometimes when students are doing co-op, they don't necessarily graduate in the traditional four years because maybe they, yes. de mm -hmm. depending on the breakdown, it might be like a semester working with an engineering firm and then their classes or however it breaks up. So yeah, we have something kind of like that, maybe not to the same extent, but it does sort of exist. Okay, so just and just for clarification, when we're saying production and distribution, we're talking about within the film space, correct? So the program was called Production Audiovisuel, and mm -hmm. basically it's a master's where you learn kind of the whole industry. So how film financing and television financing works in France. Um, mm -hmm. So this you can kind of either follow a film or a more like television route, um, wow. depending on on what you want to do. So you were very clear, obviously a in pursuing that master's, but you, and obviously based on what you studied in undergrad, you were very clear that you were going to figure out how to still be within the film space because that's what you've been doing <laughs> and, and, and the production space now just doing it in France, correct? Yeah. So for me, it was interesting because 
in the U.S., my career after after graduating was mostly focused on documentaries. So I had been working with uh, Amdoc, American Documentary, and that was in a more like curatorial space for for POV and America Reframed. Mm-hmm. But then I was doing kind of like freelance producing and associate producing, working on just like a lot of different projects that weren't particularly television or film. They were mostly like digital or like Britain content. So then when I moved here, it was really about learning the French system and kind of mm-hmm. like how and where I could see myself in that system. So my my degree was focused on on production. And then, as I said, like my day job was was really distribution. Gotcha. And so how long did you stay in that day job? Um, yeah, so I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for jobs. <laughs> Wait, well, I'm still at the same company, but not I, in the I, same position. I just realized we probably should put a timestamp on this. So what year did you move to France officially? <laughs> yeah, so I moved to France in 2017 in September. Okay. So it's been almost so that's five fair. years now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look at that. You've been there for a minute. Now, <laughs> and so how has your job changed in and from what you started doing to what you're doing now? Are you in, are you doing something different? Like what are the Yeah, the nuances? completely. So when I was in my apprenticeship, it was uh I guess I would say an assistant sales account manager because my focus was really on understanding like the mm-hmm. business side of the distribution, doing like yeah, just kind of like analyzing and reporting on like the sales numbers and that kind of thing. And it was much more of like an administrative position. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I moved to a sales assistant position. And that's where I'm really working with the sales managers and working on selling uh, the rights to our documentaries abroad internationally. And so was it for you as obviously someone who's not, or at least as far as I am assuming, not a French citizen? Was it hard for you to find these opportunities because you, you know, like, first of all, you're, you're in the, you're in the film and you're in the art space and then you're outside of your home country. So how, how was it difficult to find it, even get into the door or was it because you'd done your master's and that kind of led you to these next steps that made yeah, it easier? Yeah, I will say that the, the job market in France might be a little slower than in the US. I feel like there might be it might be easier to kind of just like move around or like quit your job and go do something else in the US. I feel like in France pe- people keep their jobs for longer. Um so there's two different types of contracts that you can have in France. One is a CDD, which is a fixed uh duration contract, and then you have a CD- CDI, um which is essentially like a long-term open-ended contract. Um, so it's like the kind of like the French success model is like to have your CDI, your like CDI, and you have this contract and you're able to, you know, have real stability, like being in this, in this company. So I feel like people don't give those up too, too easily. So once you can kind of, uh, secure that, you know, your goal might be to like move up in that company and like achieve a certain level of success where you are. Um, so for me, I was, uh, in a CDD in my, uh, apprenticeship contract. And then eventually I got my CDE. Mm-hmm. And yeah, since then I've been able to kind of like grow and evolve in this team and in this uh, structure. But I would have to say that it might be, it would have been harder for me if I, you know, had tried to come in directly to get this like mm. long-term contract or like at a different level. So I think it's all about relationships and it's all about timing and and the opportunities that literally exist when you're applying for them. So I'm I'm completely fascinated by this and I'm I'm going to ask this question because you you know you've created and produced your own series and we'll talk about that. 
from your perspective, especially where you're working, does storytelling look a little bit different in France than it has maybe when you were in the U.S. and and working on documentaries, or you know, or is there a particular point of view or the way that it's done that's similar to how we do it in the U.S.? I think storytelling is universal, but definitely the way in which it is executed is different internationally, um, and that's actually a big kind of concept in terms of distribution like your your content has to be like palatable or very interesting from an international perspective um in the way that like a certain topic can be covered or like broken down like there's a very like american way Mm -hmm. i guess and then there's a you know maybe a french way or like an international way of 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 breaking down the same topic so i would say the french way is I guess I I would say maybe softer or more like introspective where you're really going to take the time to like develop something and like maybe go a little bit slower and like deeper into a subject. And I think the American way might be a little, I wouldn't say formulaic, but I would say like there are key points that you have to hit to really engage an audience and like make sure that they're, they're following along and and they're going to really stick with you um, with the program. So yeah, that's, that's a really good question. It's interesting to think about that. Okay. So I'm wondering in light of your response, if, you know, is the, if the storytelling is a reflection of the culture, like of, of, (laughs) of where you're telling the story. So my point being is that you're saying that the French could be a little bit softer, more introspective where, in the U.S., we do have it. It could be far more formulaic and whatnot. And I'm wondering if it's also the intentionality of we have to have a certain number of folks to see this. We have to get the you know the maximum amount of people who are able to see this project. Is it an attention span thing? Like I'm just kind of curious as to maybe why you think maybe American storytelling is a little bit different. I think it depends on the content as well. Um, and yeah, I guess maybe there is like a, a specific you know, number that that has to be achieved in terms of audience or or streams or whatnot, but respectively, like in France as well as in in the US. But I think the approach might just be different because of the audiences. Like in the US, they might be accustomed to a certain type of thing. And in France, they might be accustomed to a different type of thing. And that's what will, you know, satiate their audiences. And they're going to keep driving that format because it's what they, people are expecting and what they want to see. And we will drive a format to the ground until, (laughs) let me not say that. We're on like Real Housewives of what now? I don't even, I I don't think I've ever seen a full episode and people are like, yeah, this happened 15 seasons ago on Atlanta or Beverly Hills. And I'm just like, y'all, it seems to me like it's the same concept that's been going on for a minute, but it works, right? And it makes money. So I, I could, I could see that. All right. So here's, here's what I think is cool. Obviously you have a job and, and you're, you're aligned with what you did your your master's in or your degree in. But it seems like you have still continued to do your own storytelling and you still continue to have your own point of view in, in, in the work that you're doing. And so I want you to talk a little bit about your, it's funny because it's a web series and it was a podcast, um, Current. And I want to talk a little bit about why you decided to do that and what what was sort of driving you to sort of do your storytelling the way you've been doing it. 
Yeah, that's a really good question because I went back and forth with whether or not this would be a podcast or a web series. And I think COVID <laughs> is really like the response to that in the sense that it started yeah. out as a web series and I really wanted to bring people together to have these conversations. And current the web series and podcast is really just uh, conversations bringing together French speaking and English speaking people to talk about, you know, several different concepts and topics that I think are important for the millennial generation. So in these episodes, we talk about capitalism, work culture, relationships, and the representation of youth in the media. And at first, we shot a pilot. Um, and the pilot was, you know, a web series. Mm -hmm. And I shot with the same group of people, both in English and in French. And it was very interesting to see, you know, would this make more sense as a podcast, as a web series? Like, what is what does each format really give? And, and how can I really, you know, capture people's attention with, with what I'm trying to bring forward? Um, and then by the time it came around to shoot the entire series, I just really couldn't decide. And I said, you know what, I'm going to produce both and see what really speaks to me and what, what speaks to the audience in terms of the format that, that really works for this content. There are a couple of things that struck me. Number one, web, <laughs> for anyone who's created any content, audio versus web, they're two different animals, right? I mean, in yes. your mind, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, it's it's one thing to hear it. It's a different thing to see it. And I, you know, I, I honestly, sidebar, I was reading these random debates over uh, folks who were like, you know, I see all these audio audio podcasts that are moving towards YouTube. And they, they felt like there was, there were a lot of people actually who feel like that takes away from the audio past perspective because you can do other things and, and listen to it. And also when people are on camera, it's a little, you react, let's be honest. I, I mean, they have I a think different I posture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like right now, ain't nobody can see us. I mean, whatever, like, <laughs> like I don't care. <laughs> but then you put a camera on all of a sudden, Full disclosure, put makeup on. Yeah, <laughs> right? Know? You want to look a certain look presentable way. Because it'll live on in infamy on Google, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so I think the fact that you did an audio and a web version, that's a really interesting way in terms of storytelling, just because you're right. How people present and how they share can be very different. Now, the second thing, though, that really got me is the the fact that you did it in two languages, like you had these conversations in two languages. You know, I gave a talk a few weeks ago and I was talking about, one of the things I talked about was people's heart languages, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, and I'm sure as someone now who speaks French, right? And, and if you've ever studied more than one language, I say that there's the heart language, which is just the language you just need, like little kid, that's the language you learn. That's the language you're, you are probably the most expressive in. And then there's the learned languages. And some people can be incredibly expressive in a second, third, fourth language that they've learned. But it, there's something about the way I can say something in English versus the way maybe I could say it in French. And God forbid, I can't really say it in Spanish right now because I'm still learning. But do, do you know what I mean? And so I was very intrigued, especially when you have, when you think about like the first group who you said you had them doing in English and then they had to do it in French. Would you see dynamics change either with the group or even with what people had said in one language, but then 
what it looked like in the second language. Yes. And that was the big test for me of the pilot episode was to really see, does it make sense to have the same group of people kind of responding, but in a different language? Because you know their personalities will be different in another language, but is the content really different? Like, what am I really, Mm. you know, sharing if it's the same group of people? So I felt it was really important to have two different groups of people, even if it's the same topic uh, for the series in one language or the other. So for me, uh, just as like someone who learned French, uh, I definitely feel like I have two different personalities in each language. And I think it's evident when you when you try to really get into your feelings or like express certain things like your yeah, your heart language, you go back to what you know, and what you can really articulate the way you want to articulate it. Um, and I think that's why the casting was so, so important. And it was the most fun of, of this entire process for me, because I was able to really put people together that I thought would be able to have a connection, people who weren't necessarily speaking their mother tongue, but would still be able to really connect and, and engage and, and have that conversation. And how were you able to find the guest and your panelists for your show? Were these people that you knew or was it referrals or references or where did they come from? Yeah, so I scoured the internets and I exploited all of my friends. <laughs> That's basically it. Um, yeah. No, so I had an amazing production assistant um, and she uh, went to a journalism school. So she was able to really like help me with the casting process. And between the two of us, we found 25 individuals. I want to say maybe like at least 30% were, were my close friends that, that agreed yeah. to just kind of show up and really talk about these issues. And the other people we found through Facebook, our own personal networks, even like Instagram. I feel like I reached out to a couple people that mm-hmm. I just thought had a really cool dynamic. Um, so yeah, that was that was pretty much it. And it was it was crazy because the timing was, was interesting. I had taken like a week off of work to just like focus on this project. And, you know, it was like the middle of the day, like who would be available to like show up for this like two hour conversation mm-hmm. and really just like, yeah, be present to talk about it. So it was it was interesting, but it was really great. Yeah, people have no idea how hard it is sometimes to scour talent and subject. <laughs> subject. Like if you've never done it, <laughs> it is just like, I have this idea. I have this concept because we we did a back in 2017. I actually want to bring it back now that we're kind of getting out of COVID. A web series, like a very short one on just kind of Black folks in very specific areas. And the amount of like figuring out, hey, do you have time on this random day for us to yeah. shoot at, <laughs> at maybe where you're at work and <laughs> to do whatever? So I'm totally sympathetic. And so, you know, you've you've concluded season one and that concluded, you know, the last I know the last sort of wrapping up aired in February of this year. And so, you know, with these conversations and these dialogues, what is sort of your plan kind of going forward? Is this something that you see continuing on? Or is this like a limited series? Or has it sort of changed the trajectory of what you think you want to do and film? Yes. So for me, I would love to continue with the season two. I would love to think about topics that are continuing to be engaging for the millennial generation um, and finding a whole new group of people to really explore that with. For me, I'd like to bring on maybe like a director to bring on maybe an artistic approach. The first season was really just a set of conversations and it was people just seated, you know, together having these exchanges. But maybe I can change the dynamic in, in season two with a little bit of like, like elevated cinematography. I don't know. We'll yeah. see. We'll see what happens. But yeah, I, I definitely can, want to continue to to create this content and to share this content and really to see how it's received. I think that's the biggest thing. Like you can, you know, work on something and put it on the internet and 
the biggest thing is really seeing how people interact with it and what people think about it. So I think that's my my big project for, you know, season one, even to continue to to put it online and share these stories. And then also thinking about how to approach season two to the point where, yeah, I'm able to like grow my audience and find people who are, who are really interested in these conversations. And so since you like successfully, obviously have done season one, and this is kind of your professional space, do you see yourself sort of expanding out into other stories or other mechanisms to, to sort of connect with folks? In, in other words, where do you sort of see yourself as you continue to like dive into this digital content area? Yes, that's an amazing question because there are a lot of uh, shows that I had seen in this space before I created Current that I was really inspired by. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cecilia Meke's Strolling series. Yep. Yep. Yes. I think she follows wow. us, actually. <laughs> We've oh, really had, yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. remember seeing that when I was in college uh. and they, they were basically strolling. If, if anyone listening doesn't know about it, it's a series of conversations with people about blackness in various different spaces. So Cecilia Meke, I think she's from the UK. Uh, she might be Jamaican as well. Um, so she started in the UK and she just had these individual portraits of these people uh, just, you know, walking on the street and they were just so intimate and like so well done. And I just really was inspired by that. And I love that. And I wanted to kind of create my own version of this, you know, ability to tell the story of people in different places and different spaces and how they interact and how they, you know, understand the world. So yeah, I could completely see myself, you know, picking up different formats and different projects that are continuously, you know, in line with that vision of these two stories that, you know, people have within them, like if it's two different languages or two different cultures that they really want to express and bring forward and, you know, what that means for for who they are and what their generation has to say about the world. I am so glad you brought up strolling because strolling man <laughs> was the bomb. Like, and here's the thing. And it, it, you couldn't, so she had it, it was on YouTube and then it disappeared for a while. And then I know, I know. it's back. It got though, acquired. Because, oh, really? It like, you can now, I mean, it's back in terms of you can now watch it because uh, I remember I was like, we were linked to it and I'm like, where did it go? Those stories were really good. <laughs> and then it disappeared. And then I think late last year, uh, it was a follower on Twitter. And so <laughs> she, she was pretty active on Twitter these days. And it, you, it's now back up. And I would say same, like we had a, um, and it, I feel like scrolling came out just yesterday, but it did not. But we we had our own web series, which was not strolling, which by the way, the reason if y'all don't know it's called strolling is like basically take a walk and, and talk and, 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 and you see all these great young black folks telling their stories. But you know, when we did our web series. I remember she was kind of a little bit in the back of my head because I was like, yeah, that's very similar to how I kind of vision our folks were not strolling. They were chilling <laughs> in very cool locations, but they were not, they were not strolling. And so you're right. I could definitely see like her, like that, that kind of influence because I, I don't know about you, but I love seeing, and in your case, I know that yours is a very, it's a mixed group, but I just love seeing in, in my vein, like black folks just kind of dissecting some of these topics in a very nuanced way yeah, and, and not in a very, it's not necessarily dramatic. It's not necessarily hyped up. It's like, this is like, 
it, it scratches an intellectual itch, if you will, even if I don't agree with their points, just to say, hey, we we definitely think about these things in a very deeper level. And it's not just, you know, pop culture references. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's the thing, like having these different topics to really dissect and to explore. I don't know if it's something that people think about every day or if it's something that's kind of like in the back of their mind, but just hearing other people talk about it, I think can really, you know, open up your mind to what you thought about a specific thing. Like I remember watching the capitalism episode during editing. I was Mm -hmm. like, wow, like I love hearing these different perspectives, especially for the French capitalism episode or no, for the English capitalism episode, we had someone from the UK, someone from China mm-hmm. and someone from the US. So I feel yeah. like it got really like, you know, interesting to see them share their their unique perspective based on where they're from. Absolutely. And so I guess the question begs, I, I like to ask this of all my all my folks who are expatting, you've been in Paris for about five years now, right? Yeah, almost. So do we look like we're staying in France for at least the immediate future for a while? Or is are there other places that tend to pop up? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I feel so at home here now. I feel like France is definitely my second second home. And I've had the opportunity to travel, you know, beyond Paris to different regions in France. And it's all very beautiful. And it's all like, wow, like, I don't know, what are what does my life look like here? Um, <laughs> so I definitely see myself staying here longer um forever i have no idea but i love the idea of potentially going to the middle east i love the idea of maybe going back home for a period of time but i do know that that paris and france will always be like really really special to me and a place where i'll i'll definitely spend a, a decent amount of time in my life you've just listened to an episode of the global chatter which is hosted by me amanda bates it is edited by stephanie Ficchio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.